You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Attila the Hun, the mail-order bride. You are a headstrong imperial Roman princess, accustomed to getting what you want and having whom you choose. Your family is displeased with you. They've sent you away to rot among your chaste, insufferable cousins for five years, 10 years, 15. You've been stuck in a monotony of kneeling and praying and wishing for an asp to hold to your breast, a way out. You are growing older. Your youth is draining away in prayer. You sit quietly at mass and want to tear the world to shreds. You're glad for the earthquake. For a moment, the whole world trembles and you believe in God. The walls of this city are 60 feet high and you can see freedom in the breach. You almost run the first time you see it, but the guards are still there and your sour-faced, God-fearing cousins and this breach is not enough. You need more. And then you hear he's coming. Attila the Hun. The city is in a panic. Some people flee. The city leaders plead for the citizens to stay. We won't get through this unless we work together. We must all help rebuild the walls. The sounds of saws and masonry fill the city. You hear them in the quiet of the vast basilica. You hear them at night in your cold virgin's bed. The people work around the clock, frantically building, while beyond the horizon, Attila bears down on the city like a judgment from God. When he comes, you will celebrate. When he comes, you will walk out into the streets of this city. You will strip off everything that binds you and walk through the crowds of murderous Huns and the choking fires. You will stand amidst terror and bloodshed and raise your arms to the sky and laugh. Your cousins are terrified. They pray for the wall to rise, for God to strike down the invaders. You pray for Attila to hurry. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. This is a real-life romance from the fall of Rome, the story of Honoria and Attila the Hun. Honoria was an imperial princess of Rome and the daughter of Gala Placidia. To know who Honoria is, we have to know who her mother was. Placidia, you'll remember from our previous episode, was taken captive by the Goths during Alaric's infamous sack of Rome in 410. She trailed along after the Gothic army for six years, during which time she married Alaric's brother-in-law and successor, the Gothic warlord, Atulf. 
The marriage was a happy one, but Atolf was assassinated less than a year after their wedding. The Goths bargained Gala Placidia back to the Romans for grain to feed their starving people. Her brother, the Emperor Norius, married her off to the general Constantius, a man with bulging eyes and a tyrant's look to him, who Placidia did not want to marry. Honoria was Placidia's oldest child with Constantius. Honoria had a reputation of being kind of a wild child, impulsive and promiscuous. History tends to see her negatively for this, but I see a young woman desperate for agency in her own life and trying to get it with the only currency she had, her body. Her mother, Gala Placidia, sought to deny her even this. As a child, Honoria was elevated to the position of Augusta, making her essentially too high-ranking to marry. This was intentional. Gala Placidia wanted to keep Honoria single and childless so there would be no relatives to contest her brother's rule. Honoria broke that rule at the age of 16 by seducing her chamberlain, a guy named Eugenius. Some sources say she became pregnant. This would have been a huge middle finger to her family's authority. Not only did the untouchable Honoria decide to break the rules and procreate anyway, she chose to do it with someone so low-ranking he was practically invisible. Obviously, Eugenius had to die. He was executed, and there are differing accounts of where Honoria was sent next. Some sources say it was to Constantinople to live with her cousin, the Empress Pulcheria. Pulcheria was Honoria's polar opposite. She became regent for her younger brother, Theodosius the second at the age of 15. At this time, she took a vow of chastity and forced her two younger sisters to do the same. In order to prevent scandal, she barred men from even entering her palaces. And I actually find this really fascinating because I think Pulcheria's way of taking power in her life is the opposite of Honoria's. Rather than using sex to gain power through men, Pulcheria was essentially locking men out. She didn't even let them in her palace. And many historians see Pulcheria as very chaste and pure, but I guess I see her as similar to Honoria in that way because she's trying to hold on to agency in her own life too, and she's doing it with the currency she has, her chastity. She's using it to bar the men around her from taking her power. Honoria stayed in Pulcheria's court for 15 years, a wild child in an atmosphere of religious repression. She must have been so bored. Yeah. In 447 AD, something happened that would have shaken up Honoria's world. About 12 years, give or take, after she was sent to Constantinople, there was a violent earthquake that destroyed large sections of the Theodosian walls. These walls were legendary. After the Battle of Adrianople in 378, in which the Roman army was chewed up and spit out by the Visigoths within a few days' walk of its walls, the city got real paranoid about its defenses. Around 413 AD, Theodosius II ordered three consecutive defensive walls built 60 feet tall. These were the Theodosian Walls, one of the most sophisticated examples of defensive construction in the ancient world, and this earthquake destroyed them. The Theodosian Walls are incredibly fascinating and I learned a lot about them from the History of Rome podcast. There's just an entire episode about them. So we'll put that link in the show notes. We're not going to go off on a tangent here about them. But if you're interested in how they worked, definitely listen to the podcast. Yeah, it's super interesting. The destruction of these walls was a very big problem for the city of Constantinople. See, Constantinople was a target. There were lots of bands of barbarian hordes out there sacking Roman cities. And Constantinople was the ultimate prize. It was the capital of the Eastern Roman 
Roman Empire and the richest city in Europe. It was also impregnable thanks to the Theodosian walls. But when the walls came down, the city became an irresistible temptation. Jenny, it's like the best possible chocolate cake. Yeah, like a really tall, double, double chocolate, Black Forest, deliciousness, chocolate cake. Oh, amazing. Now I'm hungry. Right? Mm. Now all I want is cake. Thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Attila the Hun also liked cake. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time, he was up north somewhere in the Balkans. Some sources say he was already on his way to the giant, amazing wedding cake of Constantinople when the earthquake struck. And others say the moment he heard about it, he pulled his army around and galloped hell for leather in the direction of Constantinople, intent on overrunning the city before they could get the walls repaired so he could get himself some of that super moist chocolatey goodness. It must have been intense living in the delicious New York cheesecake of Constantinople. Oh my god. Right? So, so good. (laughs) At this point in time, with the walls destroyed and Attila's army somewhere beyond the horizon, bearing down on you like a juggernaut from hell, people knew the Huns were coming, and they also knew what the Huns did to the inhabitants of the cities they sacked. Here's an eyewitness account of the Huns' fun times in Thrace. There was so much killing and bloodletting that no one could number the dead. They pillaged the churches and the monasteries and slew the monks and virgins. They so devastated Thrace that it will never rise again. Everyone pitched in to repair the walls. It took 60 days and the effort must have been monumental. I can only imagine the panicked, frenetic energy of the workers, the -the round-the-clock sounds of repair, every able-bodied citizen who could carry a brick throwing themselves into this desperate effort, kind of like with Carthaginians preparing for Rome, you know? I mean, but but the war elephants... (laughs) I know, there weren't any elephants then, and there were not any war elephants now. I know. I guess the thing that the thing that always gets me about that episode was them lamenting the names of their war elephants. I know, it was an elephant poor environment. I can picture Honoria at prayers with her cousins, facing down a life of endless celibacy and political irrelevance, and I bet she wanted to see everything burn. But here's the thing, Jenny. Her prayers weren't answered. The walls were repaired in the nick of time, and Honoria didn't get the way out she wanted. Instead, she got a different way out. Not too long after she was recalled back to Rome, her mother and brother had found her a husband. The guy they'd picked out for her was a fine, upstanding Roman senator named Bassus Herculanus. He was a good soldier, a non-threatening sort who would keep Honoria out of trouble, but he was also dull as dirt. And Honoria would rather dig out her eyeballs with a spoon than marry this guy. So... She did something absolutely wild. She sent a proposal of marriage to Attila the Hun. Wait, what? Yep, Attila the Hun. She would rather be married to Attila the Hun than just a a boring guy. A boring, upstanding Roman guy. I wouldn't really want to be married to a boring guy either, but if the choice was that guy versus Attila the Hun, I guess I wouldn't pick Attila the Hun. I I think Bassus is getting the raw, you know, I think people are really painting him in a bad light here. I know, I mean, okay, so, you know, maybe he doesn't make her laugh. (laughs) Maybe he wears pleated front khakis. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing wrong if you wear pleated front khakis. You just maybe want to think of a different style, but there's nothing wrong with it. All I'm asking for is flat front, but... But like, I I guess you can work with that. And if somebody's Attila the Hun, you can't really work with that. No. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, a lot of women like bad boys. I can't fault you for that. 
So how did this proposal go down, Denny? Right. So it went down like this. Honoria gave a secret message to her trusted servant, a eunuch named Hyacinthus. And what did the message say, Jen? It said, please come and rescue me from my hateful marriage. And what came along with that message? A ring. That's right. She sent him a ring. She was pretty she was a risk taker yeah i mean can you imagine proposing marriage by mail <laughs> attila the hun the mail order bride <laughs> <laughs> i'm helena bonham carter and for bbc radio 4 this is history's secret heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from world war ii they had no idea that she was britain's top female codebreaker. we'll hear of daring risk takers What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So most people know who Attila the Hun was, but let's take a closer look at him and what he was up to around this time. Attila was born around 406 AD. He would have been a toddler when Alaric sacked Rome. The Huns were nomadic horse archers and formidable warriors in the proud tradition of the Scythians before them and the Mongols who came after. He rose to power as a leader of a confederation of Hunnic tribes in 434, maybe around the age of 28, along with his brother, Bleda. And I think when I was starting to research this, Jen, I thought, well, maybe this was at the beginning of Attila's career and he hadn't quite built up his infamous, insanely bloody reputation when Honoria sent him her ring. But actually, the opposite was true. Really? Yeah. Attila had a very bloody reputation long before Honoria sent him her indecent proposal. He and Bleda had spent the last 10 years making life hell in the Balkans, Illyricum, and other areas of the Eastern Roman Empire, and Honoria definitely would have known all about it. You wild girl, Honoria. I know. Things got so bad that the emperor had to call back troops he'd sent to Carthage to protect the grain supply from the Vandals and send them against the Huns instead. This was how much of a problem the Huns had become. And he had to mint a large amount of new currency just to pay for it. But it didn't work. Attila destroyed and scattered Theodosius's army, leaving the empire so vulnerable that Rome was forced to pay 6,000 pounds in gold to Attila so that he wouldn't attack again. This sounds so familiar. Jenny, that sounds like a page out of Alaric's playbook, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds like Attila was totally copying Alaric right there. Not long after that, Bleda died. Some sources suggest Attila killed him on a hunting trip. By the time Honoria's ring reached him, he'd been sole ruler of the Huns for about five years and had worked up plenty of mischief, defeating the Roman army once again, utterly destroying cities and ravaging the Balkans. So Attila the Hun was a terrifying figure by now, not exactly approachable. Why did Honoria pick him to be her rescuer? The ancient Romans saw the Huns as not only fierce warriors, but as also so physically unattractive as to be almost alien. And there are some really crazy descriptions of them. Gibbon described Attila as someone, quote, whose figure was scarcely human. And Jordanes describes him this way. He was a man born to shake the races of the earth, a terror to all lands, destined I know not how to frighten everyone as terrifying reports spread about him. His gait was haughty, his eyes darting here and there. He was short of stature, broad-chested, with a large head, small eyes, thin beard flecked with gray, snub nose, and the repulsive complexion of his forefathers, which is pretty racist. 
Yeah, it's really racist. So the point of all this is that the Romans might have seen him as very scary. So it's really weird that Honoria sent a marriage proposal to Attila to rescue her. Yeah, I bet he was probably handsome. I I actually have that impression, too, in my fantasy romantic hive mind because I romanticize everything. But I mean, who knows what he really looked like? I don't think there are any drawings of him in existence that are definitely of him that we know about. So I guess Honoria could have appealed to Attila out of desperation alone. The Romans might have seen him as the big bad destroying their cities all over the place, but he was strong enough to scare her brother. And that was the most important thing, right? But I like to give Honoria a little more credit than that. Yeah, she was a Roman and probably wasn't immune to Roman prejudices about what the Huns were like. But she was also the daughter of Gala Placidia. And Gala Placidia had been happily married to someone that the Romans would have considered a barbarian before being unhappily married to a Roman. And she still traveled around with an extremely loyal group of Gothic bodyguards that had stuck with her since her time with Atalf. Did Honoria grow up on stories of the good old days, traveling around with the Gothic army, of how barbarians aren't necessarily the worst, which is what the Romans believed, and how the Romans could be pretty awful too? Did that shape her? I mean, that's a question that I have. Maybe Honoria was hoping she might find in Attila a second Atolf. Maybe a happy ending for herself, like the temporary one her mother found. Or maybe she was at least a little bit more open-minded about barbarians, quote-unquote, than the average Roman woman might be because of her mother's history. Maybe. What did Attila do when he received Honoria's proposal? I mean, he accepted. Attila dashed off a letter to the Emperor Valentinian, graciously accepting the proposal and demanding what he considered to be his rightful dowry, half the empire. Good on you, Attila. Valentinian responded by, I love this, basically rules lawyering Attila. He said that even if Honoria wasn't married, and by this time she'd actually been married off to Herculanus, Attila wouldn't be entitled to half the empire if he did marry her, because only men can inherit the empire. Attila, of course, didn't care. I mean, this was all just a pretext. He gathered one of the largest armies he'd ever commanded, tens of thousands, and set his sights on Gaul. His plan was to claim his dowry for himself. Attila's invasion of Gaul lasted two years. He burned, pillaged, and murdered his way through Gaul, and the path of his bloody rampage can be traced in the hagiographies of early Christian saints. For instance, St. Genevieve was believed to have... And Jenny, St. Genevieve is the patron saint of Jennifer's. That's where our name originates from. So this is our patron saint. So for instance, St. Genevieve was believed to have averted his attack on Paris by encouraging the citizens to stay and pray because the city that prays together stays together rather than fleeing the city. And in actuality, Paris was never even in Attila's way to begin with. And Lupus of Troyes was credited with saving his own city from Attila by showing up in a really great outfit, impressing Attila so much that he spared the city. According to legend, by the way, Lupus introduced himself as Lupus, a man of God, and Attila fired off, I am Attila, the scourge of God, which is the comeback that Attila is super famous for. That always makes me think of um, Ghostbusters 2 and Vigo, the... What was it? Vigo the the Carpathian. Vigo the Carpathian? He was like scourge of cities and destroyer of worlds. Right. Yeah. Well, they the scriptwriters must have read about Attila being the scourge of God when they wrote that. Absolutely. Attila clashed with the Roman army in the Battle of Shalon in 451. He lost this battle, but he did some serious damage to the Romans in the process. The Battle of Shalon seems like the sort of party where everyone has some insane story about afterwards. We've all been to those parties. Yeah, we've all been to parties like the Battle of Shalon. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll start with a fantastic quote about what this was like that I'm sure you guys can all relate to, right? For if we may believe, and this is from um, Jordan's Origins and Deeds of the Goths, for if we may believe our elders, a brook flowing between low banks through the plain was greatly increased by blood from the wounds of the slain. It was not flooded by showers as brooks usually rise, but was swollen by a strange stream and turned into a torrent by the increase of blood. Those whose wounds drove them to slake their parching thirst drank water mingled with gore. In their wretched plight, they were forced to drink what they thought was the blood from their own wounds. I mean, we've all been there. Oh, that is one of those historic details I'm never going to forget now. Right? (laughs) So during this battle, King Theodoric, an important Visigoth ally to the Romans, fell off his horse and was trampled by his own army. Later, his Visigoths almost killed Attila, who had to perform a very unheroic runaway maneuver and hide in his own camp, which again, every time I see runaway makes me think of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Runaway! (laughs) Theodoric's son, Thorismund, stumbled into the Huns' camp at night by accident in confusion after the battle. Attila's camp was a fortified wagon circle that you'd think would be hard to miss, but the counterpoint to this was that the Visigoths also used fortified wagon circles as their camps. So maybe that's why he got confused. Plus, it was dark. He also got wounded in the head. (laughs) So maybe that's why he got confused. Right. So maybe it was the, the head wound, the darkness. They both did the wagon circle thing. I don't know. But somehow this bleeding from the head wounded guy made it out alive. Good for him. Good for you, Thorismund. (laughs) Good on you. In his book, Attila, John Mann paints us a clear picture of the day after the battle when the Romans woke up to find the Huns holed up in their wagon camp. He checks out moon charts to discover that the night of the battle was probably a half moon, but it was definitely cloudy. And the reason he knows this is that Halley's Comet would have been visible in the sky and none of the chroniclers of the time mentioned it. And that would have been a really huge deal because comets were seen as a message from the gods or some kind of a sign and everyone would have been talking about it. And John Mann gives us this really clear picture of what the day after the battle would have looked like. Quote, It's dangerous to draw conclusions from the absence of evidence, but this absence combined with the other absences of storm and moon strongly suggest the day after the battle dawned dry, drab, and cloudy. If so, Imagine the surviving Romans staring over their shields at a scene of dusty desolation, corpses everywhere, riderless horses grazing, the Huns sheltered in silence by their wagons, the course of the Obe marked by a line of trees across the treeless plains rolling away into gray twilight. So Attila was holed up in his wagon camp, not retreating, but refusing to come out and settle this one way or the other. The Romans decided to put his camp under siege. In response, Attila made a giant pile of horse saddles and set it on fire fire. He threatened to throw himself into the flames if his enemies attacked him further so that he wouldn't fall into enemy hands and that none of them would have the joy of wounding him and that the lord of so many races might not fall into the hands of his foes. Jenny, I am playing the smallest violin here. I know, tiny violin. Attila, please do not throw yourself in the pile of flaming horse saddles. That would be bad for everybody. just such a bizarre detail. I know. He was just having this giant tantrum. Yeah, he was having a bit of a meltdown. To be fair, who among us has not had the occasional meltdown where we burned a bunch of saddles and threatened to throw ourselves into the bonfire? I just, (laughs) I find Attila to be very relatable. (laughs) 
Attila lost this battle, but he did survive. He and his Huns regrouped in 452, and the impact of Honoria's desperate plea for rescue would continue to be felt. Attila used his denied claim on Honoria and her dowry to invade Italy that year. He destroyed numerous cities, including Aquileia, so completely that it was hard to even determine where they stood by the time the Huns were done. People from Aquileia, fleeing the invading Huns, took shelter in the Venetian lagoon, building a marshland community that would later become Venice. I mean, that's insane. He was literally the reason Venice was founded, because they were fleeing from Attila the Hun. I mean, if you trace it back far enough, Honoria was the reason Venice was founded. If she'd never sent that ring, this would never have happened. There'd be no Venice. There'd be no Venice. Good job, Honoria. Yeah. The Romans were severely weakened by the Battle of Chalon and couldn't stop the Huns, so instead they tried diplomacy. The Emperor Valentinian sent some envoys who got Attila to agree to retreat and seek peace with the emperor. There is an aggrandizing account of Pope Leo, who allegedly got Attila to agree to leave just by asking nicely. But considering how fierce Attila was in grinding the empire under his boot, he was probably desperate by this time to agree to this. According to Jordanes, who was quoting the historian Priscus, Attila's followers were nervous about invading Rome anyway because of the fate of Alaric, who had sacked the city and then died of fever just a few months afterward. They believed the city was cursed, and it was them who convinced him not to go. The reality is that most likely disease and hunger were the most persuasive envoys to Attila. The constant war had ruined the harvest in northern Italy, and there was very little for Attila's troops to scavenge. They couldn't feed off the land and advance south to the city of Rome. So... Attila withdrew after his last failed attempt to seize his dowry from Rome. He never made it south of the Po River, which was a river in the northern Italian peninsula. But in early 453, not even a year after the ill-fated invasion of Italy, Attila was dead. Jordanes picks up the story, saying that Attila was celebrating his marriage, not to Honoria, but to a Visigothic princess named Ildico. According to Jordanes, he had given himself up to excessive joy at the wedding, and as he lay on his back, heavy with wine and sleep, a rush of superfluous blood, which would ordinarily have flowed from his nose, streamed in deadly course down his throat and killed him, since it was hindered in the usual passages. So he basically died of a nosebleed. Yeah, a backwards nosebleed. Right. Be careful when you drink too much and get nosebleeds. My question here is what happened to Honoria after she sent her ring to Attila? So it didn't get her out of her marriage. Her brother Valentinian was so angry with her that he almost had her killed. Gallo Placidia had to convince him to marry her off instead, and that happened quickly. Before Attila had even sent his reply, Honoria was married. And the aftermath, according to Gibbon, was ugly. Quote, On the discovery of her connection with the king of the Huns, the guilty princess had been sent away as an object of horror from Constantinople to Italy. Her life was spared, but the ceremony of her marriage was performed with some obscure and nominal husband before she was immured in a perpetual prison. Sounds like she was sent into exile. And Honoria disappears completely from history after this. It's possible she was killed in secret by her family while in quotation marks exile. This is frequently the fate of misbehaving imperial relatives. And if you go back to some of our earlier episodes, especially in the Praetorians, you find out about that. Yeah, there's a lot of examples of people being sent into exile. And it's usually high profile prisoners like members of the royal family and senators and elite Romans where they're sent into exile and then they're starved to death or kind of executed quietly on the sly as opposed to having a big public spectacle about it. 
And you know why that happens. It's because the people who they send into exile a lot of times are a threat to the emperor's power, but they're also kind of beloved by pe- by the people. So right. the emperor or whoever's exiling them has to get them out of the public eye long enough for the public to forget about them. And then they usually quietly starve them or have them killed, which is awful. Some people came back from exile, so it wasn't necessarily a death sentence, but Frequently, it was a death sentence. It was just sort of a, a quieter and less public death sentence. Yeah, and we're we're going to look at in an upcoming episode. We'll start looking at a family who were in and out of exile more times than I've been in and out of, I don't know, something. What have you been in and out of a lot, Jen? Please don't say jail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. More times than I've been in and out of bookstores. And if you know me, you know every new town, every new city, every place I go to, I got to go to the bookstores and check them out. That would be a whole lot of time being in and out of exile. I mean, I might be slightly hyperbolic, but only slightly here. Only as much as I romanticize people from the ancient past. I mean, (laughs) that's not a lot at all. You know, honestly, Jen, the thing about this story, one of the things that baffles me, there are a few. One of them was, why did Honoria pick Attila the Hun? But I think we may have gotten to a few reasons for that. The other thing is that Gala Placidia let this happen to her daughter. Gala Placidia had been unwillingly married herself to Constantius, so you'd think she'd be sympathetic to her daughter's aversion to her own marriage, but she wasn't. She was extremely harsh about it. I know. That's that's what's really shocking to me. And you remember in our last episode, the real-life romance of Gala Placidia and Atal, that episode in Gala Placidia's childhood, or I guess she was, you know, about 15, where she had Serena, the woman who raised her, she voted to have her strangled to death. I think it's a clue, you know, that there was something hard in Placidia. And we don't know this woman. We don't know why she made that vote. And there, this is all speculation and projection, but it's it's a clue about who she might have been. Yeah. Despite her mysterious end, Honoria left a huge mark on history. Her action set in motion two years of war, raised saints and burned cities, and created Venice. So thank you, Honoria. If you've ever been to Venice or you're ever going to go to Venice, walk around the canals and think of Honoria. The fallout of all of this was also death on a massive scale, soldiers and civilians on both sides. So maybe, maybe not such a good thing. I don't think you can really say this is a good or bad action, but it was an action that was felt on a broad scale. Yeah. The amazing thing is that despite their incendiary brush with each other, Honoria and Attila the Hunt never actually met. One wonders how the story might have changed if fate had allowed them to join forces and take on the world together. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or on Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl. You can also find us on our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, iTunes, and anywhere else podcasts come together. And if you like our podcast, please feel free to leave us a rating. It helps us get seen. And if you'd like to help us keep the podcast going, there's a super easy way to do that. Go to our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, and click on Buy Us a Latte. Your contribution will help us pay for things like better sound, research, materials, recording equipment, and yes, some caffeinated beverages. Thank you so much. 